Hello and welcome to the podcast for episode 101 of Outlander called Sassanac. I'm Ronald D. Moore, developer and executive producer of the show. The scotch today is the Balvini Doublewood aged 12 years, which was given to me by a fan named Carrie at uh, Comic-Con in San Diego. Thank you very much, Carrie. And the cigarettes are American Spirit Lights, which means the smoking lamp is lit. Let's get right to it. This opening shot is uh, from uh, Glencoe, a very famous, very beautiful uh, location in Scotland. Originally, we had like looked at several different places to do uh, uh, the, the opening shots uh, before. In fact, we had cut several different pieces into the, the director's cut right along, but then we kept looking for one particular shot. I wanted it to be a one long piece of film that you could uh, look at for a very long period of time while Claire's voiceover was guiding you uh, through the piece. If you go back and you look at it, you'll know that there's actually rain coming into the, into the lens in some of those in, in that early shot. This whole section has now become kind of known, we call it the prologue within the show. Originally, there wasn't really a prologue. This was sort of the scripted order of events and, and sequences that we went through, but it kind of bled straight into the show. And uh, originally, the main title would have opened off uh, the entire show, and then you would have gone straight in. But during the editing process, it started to feel like, well, this section was sort of separate and deserved to be uh, to sort of stand alone as almost like a teaser or, or truly a prologue. Excuse me. And once I started thinking of it as the prologue to the show, and putting the main title at the end of this whole sequence, then it sort of reconceptualized sort of how we were doing it. Uh, there's a you'll see that the score kind of carries you all the way through here. Bear McCrary is of course our composer, and he wrote a piece that sort of takes you all the way through all these different pieces of Claire's life. Uh, the voiceover changed uh, several times during the course of editing. You know, the voiceover was sort of always, we called it a work in progress from the, from the very beginning when we talked about the show originally with stars. We knew there was going to be voiceover. We weren't quite sure how much it was going to be or, or you know, exactly what it was going to say all the way through the show. So as a result, we, we rewrote it you know, several different times. This particular version didn't really come about until we were starting to look at it as a prologue. And as a prologue, then it kind of sets up sort of her, her understanding and her feeling looking back uh, from, you know, some years in the future, how many years we're not, we never really say exactly what's Claire's perspective on, on all these events. But this version of the voiceover where she talks about World War, the end of World War II, and sort of, you know, reflecting on to the, the things that you remember was sort of something that sort of uh, was an evolution. It wasn't in the, in the first draft or even the second draft. It kind of came out of uh, the editing process. You've probably noticed that we're already starting to change color. The color grading in the show is uh, something that we talked about very early on. I always knew that I wanted the 1940s and the, the 18th century to have distinctive looks. And the initial thought was, okay, let's have the 1940s be much more desaturated, taking it down almost into a black and white, which you'll see coming up here in a minute. The World War II section, we've added a lot of grain to the footage. We've saturated the colors a little bit more. They bleed out almost out of the, out of, uh, the costumes because I wanted to sort of recapture that look of actual color footage from World War II and make that section look like combat footage almost. And then you see here we're in the 1940s. One of the key things that I did in, in color grading all the way through the 40s stuff is I would sort of pick a particular color, in this case, blue. I, I was usually keying off of whatever dress or costume Claire was wearing and then bring that color forward. So you'll see that there's some blue in the, in the, in the rooftops, there's blue there in the ornaments on the, on the, on the fountain in the center of town. And you'll see that all the way through the 40s stuff. The main title. You know, it took a lot of thought, a lot of development. We had a company come in and, and shoot this, and we had several companies pitch us 
different versions of the title. Uh, we shot some footage particularly for the main title, some of the dancers, some of the, the extreme close-ups like that shot there with uh, the hat is, is obviously shot particularly for the main titles, whereas some of these shots of the dancers and some of the other pieces are clips from the show that we, we try not to use them so that you didn't have the exact same shot in the main title that you'd have in the show, but sometimes the differences are, are pretty subtle. This particular song has sort of an interesting history in that when I first approached Bear McCrary about doing the, uh, the project, uh, and I said, hey, Bear, I don't know if there's any chance that you might be interested in doing this show, and he immediately sent me back an email saying, no, actually, I'm, uh, I'm a fanatic for this period. I love the Jacobites. I, I, I know everything about this. I did my thesis on it. And here, here's a, here's a track I did on an accordion like a couple of years ago just for fun. And it was this song, which is called the Sky Boat Song. Uh, the lyrics that we chose, uh, Bear did some research. These are not the, the quote-unquote traditional lyrics. It's a very old piece. But these are lyrics that are written by Robert Louis Stevenson, as a matter of fact. We altered the lyrics slightly to make them say, oh, uh, to, to refer to a lass and to, to talk about a female voice singing it, whereas that the song was actually written about Bonnie Prince Charlie and uh, his exile to the island of Skye after the, you know, the, the, the uh, Jacobite uprising. If you look here at the footage, you'll see that you know the 1940s stuff, like I was saying earlier, is a little more desaturated. There's more blue in, in Claire's coat. We're also you know leaving the browns and slight bits of red, but basically we wanted a different feeling. There was a point during the development process where I thought about going the other way, where the 1940s stuff would be brighter and the the, the past be uh, more monochromatic and a little more a little dimmer. But ultimately decided this was this was the better way to go. Uh, this is really this is really Tobias uh, out there driving the car, which is kind of cool, and uh, Claire going around for the ride. Uh, this scene went in and out of the show quite a bit as we went through editing, trying to decide what what pieces we needed, what pieces we were going to change. The adaptation process is, was a you know the first my first time to really tackle it. Yeah, actually, that's not true. I did do an adaptation for a pilot that didn't get made for the Dragon Riders of Pern uh, many, many years ago. But this is really the first one that I've, I've taken as far and, and actually made it. And there was a question in my head about how long to spend in the 1940s you know, in, in the pilot episode and how quickly do you want to get to the good stuff? How quickly do you get to uh, Kragna Dunn and how fast do you take the character Claire back in time? I was looking for sections of the book through the first 115, 150 pages or so, that would sort of be, you know, uh, important scenes that the fans wanted to see, and that also told the story of this couple, sort of arriving at Mrs. Baird's bed and breakfast and seeing the blood outside. I thought it was a pretty evocative idea. I thought it spoke a lot about paganism in the area and sort of started the show in this sort of mysterious note, and you began wondering, you know, what kind of world that they were stepping into. There was more to this scene with Mrs. Baird. Mrs. Baird then told them a ghost story after the scene here at the reception desk, and she walks them up the stairs and down the hall and continued the story outside, but we cut it for time. This, this location, this is a location where we shot this, the, the reception and the, uh, the, their, uh, their actual room coming up. Both uh, locations, they're in the same house. There is a house, this enormous house that was a fascinating place that is also the same location that we shot the Reverend Wakefield's house in. So the bed and breakfast, Mrs. Baird's and the Reverend Wakefield's are all actually the same buildings. It's an enormous house. It's the kind of house that 
every time you looked, you know, down the, the hall or opened a door and, you know, looked behind a picture, there was just so much stuff in this place. All you wanted to do was just explore it. I remember when we were shooting there, I just kept wanting to go into other building, uh, uh, other rooms and sort of go, you know, go hunting and discovering and seeing what the hell else I could find in this crazy place. Uh, it was owned by a lovely couple. We're very generous, you know, and very happy to have us there and were, made us feel very, very welcome. But they had this enormous house that was very old and it had clearly been lived in for ages and just had all this stuff in it. Most of the stuff we took out, like all the set deck in this particular scene is stuff that we brought in specifically uh, for the show. But the house was just filled with artifacts from like for the last 200 years. Again, this is in the same house. This is a, an actual bedroom in their house. That's their wallpaper. Uh, we brought in all the all the rest of the furnishings and decoration, of course. Gary uh, Gary Steele, our production designer, was in charge of that, and uh, Gina, his uh, who was in charge of set deck. Uh, I should probably mention my wife Terry Dresbeck, as most of you know, is the costume designer on the show. Um, she spent a lot of time thinking about Claire's look, and I love Claire's coat. That coat is one of my favorite. Uh, favorite coats in the show. I love all the 1940s looks that, that she created for these characters. The squeak in, on the bed is something that's drawn from the book. It was an early, um, it, it talked about them getting to the bed and breakfast and the bed kind of squeaked a bit and them having fun sort of sitting on the bed. We were actually shooting it or during rehearsal. The actors were uh, rehearsing with John Dahl, the director, and I think, it was, I think it was Katrina who had the idea of jumping on the bed, of standing and jumping on it. And that seemed like fun. And then as, as the scene developed, we were all standing there watching it. We decided to keep them jumping on the bed and then play the second half of the scene with them still standing on the bed. There was some concern that they might actually break this bed because <laughs> there was no one really anticipated that they would be jumping on this bed. So it wasn't really constructed for that. It was just a bed. And when Tobias here in a second, he says, we'll break the bed. I think he was serious. He was like, we're really going to break this fucking bed. <laughs> I always wanted this shot of Mrs. Baird, you know, hearing the squeaking coming from above. I think in the book it was actually she was uh, vacuuming or something, and she kept hoovering as she heard like the, you know, the, the squeaking coming from their room. One of the ways you could tell that this was not anticipated to be in the shoot is if you look carefully in the background, you can see like the, the uh, the paint is peeling off of the ceiling in the room, which is something Gary would have never <laughs> allowed to be in the shot. You know, but uh, because this was kind of a last minute on the set change, you know, the paint is definitely peeling off the off the ceiling in the background, um, and I think it's I think it's great. I think it adds a bit of character and it adds a reality uh, to the to the scene that really wasn't there before. <clears throat> uh, there was more sex to the scene. You'll see that they start to to make love here on the bed. We actually shot more. I mean, we we shot more sex, and you know, it was going to be the first time that we actually had uh, Frank and Claire have sex. But in the editing process, it kind of felt like you didn't need to see it here. I think one of the, the judgment calls that you make in a show like this where, where there is a lot of you know, sexuality, a lot of graphic material, is when you use it and to what, to what purpose. You know, here, it, the purpose is just to show that they are connecting. And I didn't really need to see very much. You know, the, the point of the scene was not you know, a big sexual romp. It was just to show that these people are trying to connect again and sort of the, 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 how it starts somewhat awkwardly but that, that that Claire is reaching out to him and that he responds, you know, and, and goes and, and, and goes into her arms. I really like this scene for Frank because I, I really find him, you know, quite vulnerable and awkward. And I think you kind of root for him. One of the things I wanted to accomplish in the first half hour of the show that I thought was critical to the success of the series was that you begin to root for Claire and Frank as a couple. 
that uh, you know you understand what the nature of the relationship is and that you're hoping that they're going to work it out, especially if you don't know the books and you're just watching the show for the first time. You'd be introduced to this interesting couple and you know having difficulties, but you kind of hope that they're going to work it out. And I thought that was critical to spend that kind of time with Claire and Frank here at the top of the series because so much of the first season is driven by Claire's desire to return to Frank, to return to her to her home. And if you didn't understand why she wanted to get back to, to the 1940s, if you didn't understand that she was really genuinely in love with this man, you never would have you never would have cared. You would have just said, shut up, Claire, just stay in just stay in the 18th century. You know, it's pretty nice there and you got this great looking guy. Why do you try to get back to the 20th century? But the more you engage with Claire and Frank as a couple, the more that you care about him and how he matters to her, the more you understand her the nature of her conflict, which is critical. We actually had two Uncle Lamb scenes uh, that were in the script. We only shot one. The second one was going to be a piece of them uh, playing poker. And uh, they, he was teaching her the game of poker. And uh, I think they were in the back of a, back of a truck. And uh, the, the, the point of the scene was that he, she wouldn't fold. Like she just refused to, to bluff and she refused to fold. She always was going to play the cards in her hand was, was the deal. And I thought that was an interesting thing. It's, it is definitely worth noting that, no, the young actress there did not actually smoke the cigarette. It's not even a real cigarette. It's just a prop, and uh, there's no s smoke. It's just uh, we added the smoke and visual effects later, and we added the, even the, we added the, uh, the flame on the lighter. So, no, we did not corrupt young youth by teaching her how to smoke. We did that you know, later in, in, at craft services. Uh, Castle Leak. Uh, this is one of the first locations that we scouted initially. You know, early on in the show, before we'd even brought most of the production team together, I went on a, a scouting exp several scouting expeditions to Scotland. This is Dune Castle, which was uh, used most famously in Monty Python. Excuse me, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. In fact, if you go to Castle Dune now, they have coconuts in the gift shop, as well as the script to uh, Holy Grail, and tourists tend to stand up on the ramparts and shout out uh, lines from the movie, which I thought was utterly charming. Uh, that shot is obviously, well, not obviously, maybe they don't know, but the castle is actually intact. It's actually supposed to be the best preserved example of a Middle Ages uh, castle left in Europe in that it was not really changed and renovated over the years like so many of the castles were. So it's actually a very well-preserved uh, castle. In fact, at the very end of the uh, Sassanac and into the second episode, you see the castle the way it really appears. So what we did is instead of building up a ruin into a good-looking castle, we took a good-looking castle and, and digitally made it into a ruin because we only had to see it as a ruin very briefly here in the 1940s. This is a, this is a set. This is our kitchen that we built uh, on our stages in Cumbernauld. Uh, but it's based on the actual kitchen at uh, Castle Leac in, in episode two. And we do go into the kitchen. You'll get a better look at this set. And it is modeled on the, the real kitchen there. The, the hearth really is that big. It really is. It's sort of all uh, predicated on the, on the, actual, uh, the actual place. Uh, our production designer, Gary Steele, sent his guys out to the location at Dune, and they took uh, plaster molds of all the stonework. And then from those molds, we created our walls here on the sound stages and painted them to look exactly like the real stone. So even though this interior as well is something that was built on our sound stages, the, all the all the, the stonework and all the, the, the colors and textures are, are replicating what was really on the interior of Castle Dune. 
We talked about shooting interior Castle Dune, but the problem is it's a historic uh, site and it's uh, protected, obviously, because they want to take care of it. And it's a lot of restrictions of what you can and can't do on the interior. You know, you can't hang lights. It's hard to move equipment through. The corridors are very narrow and very difficult to maneuver in. So it was, it was much easier for us to build our own interiors for Castle Leak and then go uh, to Dune just for the, uh, for the exterior work. The uh, apothecary, which is what we called it, we also called it uh, Claire's surgery, depending on who was writing the episode. As you see them go down this, this, this staircase into the apothecary, this is on stage B, and the other, uh, the, the corridor that they just came out of is actually on stage A. The reason being that we had to build stairs, and you know, sound stage is flat, you had to build up to go to the stairs, so the stairs lead up to nowhere on stage B, and then the, the flat section of corridor that's ground level is actually on stage A. Our greensman did an amazing job uh, bringing in, you know, a lot, all these roots and plants into this set to sort of make it look decayed and old. And it's actually incredibly intricate. I mean, he really took the time to sort of, you know, feather each particular vine up in, into an intricate lattice work. You know, you see where the roots go. I mean, it's a really incredible job they did to, to sort of make this look as if it's... Uh, you know, decayed and, and old. Then we brought in all these uh, sort of standing pieces and metal to sort of suggest that it, stuff and junk had been thrown down here uh, over the centuries that had passed. Uh, this scene with uh, the, uh, Claire and Frank having sex here in, in the basement of Leak, uh, there was, again, there was a longer version of the scene that we did use that had more sex in it. The voiceover that you hear later on about Claire saying, sex is our bridge back to one another, the place we always met. And originally that was written to go here. So this was a longer sexual beat. This, what's gotten the most uh, comment on this scene, surprisingly, is this beat coming up right here where Claire, you see her hand reach up around his head and pull right there and pull him down towards her to, you know, go down on her. And uh, it just happened once. And uh, it was sort of interesting in that originally in the original director's cut and the first couple of passes through, that wasn't even included. He just kind of went down on her and then they had this, this whole like sexual romp. And it was Chris Parnell, who's an executive at uh, Sony, who said, you know, I think there's a take. I remember a take where she reaches up, excuse me, and pulls his head down. Let's use that one because it suggests, you know, her agency and it's, you know, her in control. And I thought that was a fascinating idea and went back and sure enough, found the take. And then there it was. And it's just one time that she reached up and did that. But the interesting thing now that I've started to hear comments on the show and people have actually seen it reacting for the first time, they all sort of point to that moment. It's like, oh, my God. And then Claire, like, pulled him down to, to, to give her head. And it's like, oh, what does that mean? Oh, it's a, a statement of feminism. And actually, it was just something that happened on the set. And uh, it almost didn't even end up in the cut until uh, uh, Chris mentioned it. Uh, this this uh, place, uh, Reverend Wakefield's, uh, again, this is in the same house as, uh, this is just another house in the same build, another room in the same house as uh, Mrs. Baird's uh, bed and breakfast. Uh, James Fleet, of course, playing uh, the Reverend, who does a wonderful job here. Uh, we played with different sort of background music. We, I, I wanted uh, 40s music that was not immediately recognizable. I didn't want it to all just be sort of greatest hits in the 1940s, because I just feel like that's a bit of a, a cliche. And there's like lots of little tidbits strewn in here. You know, obviously all the stuff about blackjack and harassing the countryside and the definition of Sassnack. It's like in this whole section through the first half of the show, it's all like planting little breadcrumbs that may pay off in this episode that may pay off in, in subsequent episodes. 
this upcoming scene with uh, Mrs. Baird, uh, sorry, Mrs. Graham, <laughs> sorry, Mrs. Graham and Claire uh, in the kitchen and the tea reading scene and then the palm reading scene is drawn very closely from the book. In fact, I think I started with the actual dialogue from the book. We had uh, some of the writer's assistants, a couple of the writer's assistants, pull all the, the actual spoken dialogue from the book and give it to us in, uh, in files for the writers so that it's always there to work on. Yes, that's my dog Fagan outside barking at passersby. It's okay, I'll go shoot him later. Uh, but this whole scene with uh, Mrs. Baird and Claire, it, it's, it's very, it tracks very close into the actual dialogue from the book. You know, I mean, if, if the stuff from the book works, you, you use it, you know. And I think fans of the books uh, enjoy sort of seeing some of those scenes come to life because they do remember these things, and some of these, these moments are quite memorable. This was a, a moment that definitely stuck in my mind. I love the, the tea reading scene because it started to add the creep factor into the show. Like, ooh, something's going to happen, something, something's... Something wicked this way comes, you know, that it has those kind of elements into it. Uh, this kitchen is also in the same house as uh, the Reverend Wakefield's and Mrs. Baird's. Uh, actually, they had two kitchens. This was the lower kitchen, the smaller kitchen, and there was a bigger kitchen that we opted not to use because it was a little bit more modern. I fell in love with that uh, that stove, uh, that that enormous period stove in the background, and I, I think Gary uh, loved the. I think he brought in the wallpaper and set decked it, and we did a whole thing to make it to make it really 1940s. But it was it was a lovely location. It, it served our purposes really really well. I really like the way John shot all this, and, and David Higgs, who's our, uh, our DP on the show, lit it beautifully. You know, when you're doing a first episode or a pilot, I mean, technically this is not a pilot because we were ordered straight to series. But the first episode of a show is you're setting so much in place. You are, you're establishing everything. You're establishing the look and the feel and the tone of the show. And the way they set up the shots and the way they played people, the, the blocking, the, sort of the, 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 the fundamentals of the light, the way the characters would and would not behave. All those things are established for the very first time in the first episode. And after that point, you start making changes, you know, you learn things and you embroider on sort of the work that's been done earlier. But it's always the pilot episode that sort of sets things in motion. And, and John and, and David, uh, between the two of them, really did a tremendous job of, of giving us the look and feel that became uh, Outlander. And you know, a tremendous amount of credit goes to, to both of those gentlemen because it's a lot of hard work to make all the original decisions. And then people after that can you say, well, okay, I'm going to change it slightly like this, or I love this, but let's do that differently. But the first time through is the toughest through. It's the equivalent of the writer you know, facing the blank page as opposed to the writer that comes on, you know, later on is, is adding on to earlier work. <clears throat> uh, there's a little pickup shot here coming, uh, this, this cutaway to Frank and uh, you know, right here and th this shot to uh, the Reverend Wakefield. These were actually shot months later because I realized that I wanted to go back and add a little bit of dialogue about the Duke of Sandringham because that plays into subsequent episodes of the show, spoiler alert. That uh, you know that the Duke of Sandringham is actually an important figure in the show, and I wanted to elaborate a little bit and go a little bit further into the fact that he was a Jacobite and died under mysterious circumstances and so on, because that will come to figure uh, later into the series. So uh, we just went back; we were going back into this location for another for another episode anyway, and so I, I it was a perfect time to go back and grab those two pieces of the Reverend and, and Frank sort of talking to one another. 
there was more dialogue in the scene that was cut. The, the Reverend went on a, bit, a little bit longer about, you know, what happened at Samhain, you know, in, in Inverness, and that was a, a lot of fun, but it, we just kind of trimmed it for time. I mean, one of the decisions we made early on, or I made early on, was the change of the seasons from the book. In the book, uh, all these events happen in the spring. And there's a, there's a spring festival called Beltane that everything happens uh, around in the book. Well, we weren't shooting in the spring in Scotland. We were starting to shoot in the fall through the winter. And since the events of the book took place in the spring into the summer, I was faced with the, the prospect of having to shoot winter in Scotland and pretend that it was summer in Scotland. And I said, that was madness. So I said, let's just move all the events into the fall right after the end of the Second World War. And uh, there was a pagan festival that was uh, the, the, uh, the called Samhain that was you know, coincided with uh, our version of Halloween and thought, oh, let's just spin everything that way. And I called Diana Gabaldon, and she thought that was a, a fine idea. She didn't think it interrupted anything of vital importance. So the whole show then has shifted the timeline away from the book. This is one of those uh, sequences in, in the book that's very evocative and that all the fans remember, which is the ghost, the ghost appearing outside of Claire's window and looking up at, at her, and that Frank comes upon him and then he vanishes. Uh, in the book, it's a little different. I think there's a picket fence, and you know he comes up, he's standing by the fence, and Frank walks up and so on. Well, obviously, we didn't have a picket fence, uh, but this location, uh, which is an actual uh, location of a village in Scotland, served us uh, just as well. Uh, you know, It's a big open space, and it was tricky to, to sort of do something like this that, you know, it's about the absence of a character rather than watching him disappear. So if you went back and watched it on the cut, you would just see that he, we simply don't pick him up when we come around on the other side of Frank. I, I didn't want to see him disappear. I didn't want to see him go transparent or anything like that. It was spookier to just keep going with the way Frank described it, which is he was there and then I turned and then he was gone. Uh, this particular scene uh, is one of my favorite scenes in terms of the way it looks. I said early on to everybody that we, we wanted very natural lighting. We wanted very true lighting. I didn't want to, to sort of make it uh, heightened. I didn't want to sort of embroider on, on it to make it very dramatic. I wanted to go with as much real light as we could. So in this scene where all the lights are out because of a power failure, we lit this completely with candlelight and with the, the light from, from the fireplace, and that's it. And that was a lighting challenge because you really had to be careful. But uh, the great thing about using uh, the new digital cameras, uh, the, uh, this show is shot on the Alexis cameras, for those of you who care. The great thing about contemporary uh, digital cameras is that they're very, very good in low light conditions, like this scene. So you could really pull a lot of light and a lot of textures out of the scene, even in, uh, under extremely low light. If you go back to the days when uh, <clears throat> Stanley Kubrick did the movie Barry Lyndon, which is an amazing achievement. He did a lot of scenes that were lit only by candles on uh, on film. But if you look at those scenes, he had to bring in a tremendous amount of candles because it was just very hard to cap to get low light conditions on, on, on celluloid. And with the digital uh, cameras now, you can go very, very low light, like like this scene is. This is a tricky emotional scene because basically, you know, Frank, who's a guy who you just met, is basically accusing your heroine of, of cheating on him. And you know it's a false accusation even though you've just met Claire. And the trick here is not to lose sympathy for Frank, to understand that Frank is, is operating from a place of pain as well and that he's trying to sort of reach out and say, hey, you know, look, I, I'm just saying maybe you did and that's okay because I, I'm ready to forgive you. With a hint of maybe, just maybe, Frank has something that he would like her to forgive too if, if truth became known. A lot of takes on this. 
you know, we went, th th there was a long, very difficult, you know, involved scene because it's a very emotional scene. It was also very, very early on in, in the, uh, the, the shooting schedule. Now, the scene coming up here, or we're about to just do an internal time cut, this is sexual and we do present it more graphically and you see, you know, you see more, more, more sex. It was more important here because this was sort of an emotional response to what had just happened and this is them, excuse me, really connecting sexually for the first time. So we spent more time with it. We, we made it as sensual as possible. We wanted this to sort of read something differently than the, the, the previous two times that they had, they had made love, that this was actually these two, uh, this is a married couple. This is a married couple coming together and this is a married couple, you know, being together, you know, and trying to really have an emotional as well as physical connection. And this is where the voiceover also, uh, also tells us that. So you see more here, you know, and it's not purient. It's just sort of, this is the more organic organic uh, place to have to have this kind of uh, material in the show. And again, we don't linger on it too long. We, uh, we kind of play it for what, what you want. You sort of want to, to sort of get the truth of it and then, and then we kind of move on. Now in the scene coming up here with the two of them post-coital in bed, there was a little bit more that was cut uh, from Frank's dialogue. Uh, when Claire's, Claire actually says to him, uh, did you really draw my hands in the pages of a report? And he said, yeah, I got dressed down by this brigadier. And oh, it was a report. And he says, and it was a report about covert operations. And she says, oh, I hope he liked the report. And Frank says, well, actually, it was a report of all these men that I sent you know, in, into, uh, into France. And most of them were discovered by the Gestapo, tortured and killed. And, and it was like a moment where she realized and heard one of the few times he's actually talked about his wartime experiences, and then they kind of moved on. And it was a, a very lovely moment, but the show was kind of running long, and we were taking a long time in the 1940s, as it were. So it just felt like, let's, let's move on. And uh, so, we, so we cut those lines. Thank you, Fagan, for your comments and for your approvals on the scene. Now the scene coming up here uh, is, of course, you know, one of the big set pieces of the show is Kragna Dunn. Uh, we we had early conversations and uh, about exactly what this was going to be. We built the stones on uh, at our studio. The stones are made of styrofoam. You can pick them up by yourself. They were sculpted by an artisan, a craftsman, craftsman, and painted, you know, to look like actual stone. And then we hauled them out there to the actual location and implanted them in the ground. It took a long time to find the actual location for Cragnodon because it had to be sort of, had to fit a lot of masters. It had to be big enough to, for all these stones to stand in a circle. It had to be level enough that dancers could actually dance around on it. It had to be on a hill with, with a bit of a view because we were going to have to climb up to this hill and then run back down it. So it wasn't easy to find. It took a long time to find the actual location of Cragnodon. Uh, and then w once we sort of, uh, separately, we sort of had then, uh, we had a choreographer and we had real dancers come and rehearse this on the sound stages. And I, I've got video, I'll probably show it to somebody at some point, where you see them all dancing in a darkened sound stage with these lanterns. Uh, these lanterns came out of an idea that I think Terry actually showed me for the first time. There was a, a, a painting, an old painting of a woman standing with a, a shaded, sort of paper lantern that had a, a candle in the center of it. And she said, what if they were all holding these? And I thought, oh my god, that's brilliant. So then they created these, uh, these lanterns that actually have LEDs on the inside. And the LEDs are controlled by uh, David Higgs, by the cinematographer off camera. He could increase the flicker effect. He could sort of brighten them and darken them. So he had total control over it, but they felt like candles uh, within, the, 
within within this sort of a, a fabric structure where they actually it's not fa even fabric it's actually some kind of resin or plastic for safety so that you could you could hold them and they would hold the shape but these 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 ladies are actually out there in the dead of night in the freezing cold doing this and they're not wearing a hell of a lot i mean they're wearing these sheets and they're, they're, these costumes are meant to look like sheets and dancing around in the, the, the bitter cold and you know i have a tremendous amount of respect for them and for claire and for everyone who had to go out and suffer through these elements uh, out of craig to dunn but this is one of my favorite sequences in the show. I always I love that shot in particular, sort of the overhead. You notice that there's a slight bleed of the of the lanterns behind them, it's just a little bit of a trailing effect. I, I, I like that because it had a suggestion that something magical was happening, but I knew I didn't want it to, to move into overtly magical. I didn't want it to sort of have energy beams flying around and that kind of thing. Uh, the, the key thing here to me was to feel the sort of tribal, primitive, paganistic aspect of, of this that, you know, like Claire says, that she was here eavesdropping on something that she shouldn't be and that there's something ancient and powerful going on. A lot of the work of this scene happened in post-production. You know, our editor, Michael Halloran, worked very hard in this sequence. You know, cutting a dance sequence is, is probably as complex, if not more complex, than cutting a, an action sequence or a fight sequence because it's about movement and it's about speed and it's about matching. You'll notice that we go in and out of sort of slow-mo and then move it faster at certain points and you're cutting it to, to a rhythm and a pace and a beat. And I, I love it. I think it's a really fantastic... Um, fantastic sequence in the show whenever i watch it with people i'm always sort of i always get a little bit of a chill and i always sort of look around to see people's faces and see how they're drawn into 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 the sequence i love mrs graham you know it's great thing with mrs graham is that she feels like it you know this is a, a secret face to her and that comes through in the scene is that this is a different face to mrs graham than the face that you saw you know in the kitchen uh, reading tea leaves The sun there is actually a visual effect. There was just a big white hot light on the set that we then, uh, in visual effects, and the miracle of visual effects, we became into a, a golden uh, yellow-orange sun. And this little beat coming up with something, uh, people kept trying to get me to cut from the show, which I just refused to cut no matter what. I just fell in love with it and just refused to do it. You know, this, this is where Claire and Frank here are going to walk around Cragnendon and kind of look around. They don't do very much. There's no voiceover. There's nothing really happening. They're just kind of looking around. Claire sees the flowers, is intrigued by them, and then uh, the lady comes up to retrieve her hair comb. And it's just, there's nothing else happens except for that. She's just there to get the hair comb, and then Frank and Claire hide and run away, and the girl sits there on the hill. And everybody kept saying, oh, who cares about that? Let's just cut. Let's just get on with it. And, you know, part of it was a mechanical problem, whereas, you know, the, the whole reason Claire goes back up to Cragnodon is to get those flowers. So she had to be interrupted. There had to be a reason why she couldn't get the flowers in the first place and had to come back again. And the second reason was just subjective in taste. I like it. I like it because it's a quiet interlude. There's something beautiful about it. I like that it's not part of story. It's not part of plot, but it's an interesting texture. And I think this girl that comes up and looks around, who was the, I think she was the lead dancer of the, of the dancers in, in, in truth. And I just like the fact that she sits, she comes up here, she finds the comb. And what does she do? She turns around and she just sees the beauty of the scene and she just sits down and just drinks it in. And it's just like a quiet moment of life. And I, I, I love it because of that, because it's just, it has no other purpose than to, to just be lovely and beautiful. This song here, Run Rabbit Run, is something that my daughter, Roxy, uh, 
loves. And I had, my wife Terry had, had found this song and played it for Roxy when she was a little girl. And it's such a wacky, crazy little song. Go look it up or find it on iTunes. Run, rabbit, run. And it's a weird period song about, you know, the farmer's going to get his guns, so run, rabbit, run. And it's the craziest little tune. And again, I wanted uh, uh, songs that were not necessarily recognizable for the show that we could put into, into uh, as needle, they're called needle drops, in, into the soundtrack. And Run, Rabbit, Run was like a perfect one. And it was also just, a, just something I wanted to put in the show that would always be there for my daughter. You know, that I, I just wanted to put that song in there because it meant something to her and that that song would forever be you know, Roxy's gift in the show. Uh, this moment here, the slow-mo shot of Claire kissing him and then letting him go was not something that we asked for in the script. It wasn't something that we talked about. It was something that John Dahl just came up with. And I, it, it's a brilliant stroke because it really underlines the last moment that she kisses him. And even if you don't know where the story is going, you know that that's a special moment. And it really is a special moment. And it was a great insight of John's to realize that he wanted to, to shoot that in a special way and to sort of underline it uh, for the audience. Again, uh, as we go away from the car, you'll see that the car and the and the fence and a couple of the trees in the background, the next time she comes down the hill in the, in the 1700s, those elements are gone. So there's just like some subtle things that we changed so that you would feel the difference between then and now. Uh, I think in the book when she comes up to the stone, uh, I think it's a different stone. I think it's the split stone that you see there that she just passed in front of that she actually touches and goes back in time. But John felt that it should be the center stone, that it's a focal point. And I thought I think that was correct just in terms of what would work in the television series because it draws your eye and there's a natural inclination towards feeling that the center stone is something special. So we switched that. Uh, this shot coming up here where Claire hears something and the, and the wind comes up, that is not a wind machine. <laughs> it was actually just the wind, and it happened on every take. It's crazy. See right there where it blows her hair, and it blows her in front of her face, and then it blows it away from her face at the perfect moment? That's just the gods, you know, <laughs> reaching in and helping us do the show. That's not, that's not an effect. That's just the way the wind was that day, which is unbelievable. Talked a lot about this sequence coming up. The, the travel through time, how we were going to realize it. Uh, I all, At the beginning, I just knew all the ways I did not want to do this. I knew I did not want a light show. I knew I did not want to see you know energy beams. I knew I did not want to see her physically disappear. I knew I did not want to see her go into the stone. So what was left? And I puzzled and puzzled and puzzled and scratched my puzzler some more. And then as I was looking through the book again, I realized that the answer was there, that Diana had written... You know, this metaphor that Claire tried to describe the feeling of what it was like to travel through time. And she referenced this car accident that she was in. And I thought, let's just do that. Let's let's make the subtext text. Let, let's literally shoot it and show, you know, her journey through the stones just as a metaphor of what the, the emotion of the, of, the, of the scene felt like. So we did the car crash. The car crash was an actual car that was built. It was a chassis that was built upon a, a gimbal. And it rotated. And so we put the actors in the gimbal against a green screen. And we turn it upside down over and over again with a with a, a fan, what's called a phantom camera, which shoots at an extremely high rate of speed, so you get that very very super slow mo look. And we put them in the vehicle and we turn it over over and over again. And the actors were troopers, and the actors kept laughing. I think they they enjoyed it. It was almost like a roller coaster. And see here as Claire comes down the hillside, you'll notice that the the fence in the foreground is gone. It's also uh, we took a, we erased a couple of trees in the background. Right there, there used to be trees in that shot against the skyline. 
we also took out to sort of emphasize the, you know, the, the absence of something, which is a tricky thing to do to the audience. You know, it's one thing to show the audience something new. It's, it's, it's something different to show the audience something that's, that's gone. Now, this was interesting in that I deliberately took all the music out of this section. I think we attempted a couple of times and we had some sort of creepy music or tense music leading up to the gunshot. And at some point I decided, you know, let's, let's keep this dry, that is, have no score whatsoever leading all the way up to the first gunshot. Because basically I wanted to sort of, you know, lull you into a sense of security, you know, get you just familiar with the ambient sounds, no voiceover, just get used to the quiet and let you just ease into the quiet and then suddenly bang out of nowhere is this gunshot and I, at this point I've seen the show a couple of times with audiences in, in a theater and when we get up to this point I always turn my head and watch to see the in, in anticipation of the audience's reaction and when that gunshot goes off right there every head in the theater yanks back and it's the most satisfying thing in the world to see everybody startled uh, this song coming up is a song by a, a band called Clanadonia. Uh, which is a, a local group uh, in Scotland that uh, the writers discovered. I think Meryl Davis, my producing partner, and several of the other writers actually uh, came across Clanadonia performing on the streets in, in Edinburgh, I believe, or Glasgow. And they were performing, uh, I think, this song and uh, selling copies of their CDs. And so they picked up a copy of the CD and they said, oh my God, you've got to listen to this and gave it to Michael Halloran, our, our, uh, our editor, and he used it in a trailer for the show, and then uh, we worked it into the show itself because it's such an evocative, fun piece. There's something about it provides an energy and it just a, a pulse, a boom, and, and you're in this fun, weird space. Like now you're kind of enjoying what's going on, and you, you it sort of says, hey, come along with us on this adventure, this crazy Scottish thing that's about to happen to Claire, and it's just like the perfect song. So Clanadonia, ladies and gentlemen, go, to, go and buy their albums. Again, leading up to the first encounter with Jack, the thing that was important was just to get her sense of, of disorientation and, you know, to be follow you're in Claire's head, you know, you're following her journey all the way through. Claire's in every scene of this show, nearly every shot of this show, and you wanted to be with her. This is a crit critical bit of business. The first time she meets Jack. Now, there is a little bit more to the scene that I did cut in editing. Because the first thing he does is he, he goes after her and he knocks her to the ground and is on top of her and almost tries to rape her there. And then she knees him in the balls and kicks him off and then runs to the, to the bridge. But when I was watching it, I kind of felt like it was gratuitous. I, I felt like I didn't need him to knock her down and get on top of her. Like I thought his drive should be not that I want to rape this woman, that his drive is who is this woman and what's she about and what's the secret that she holds who is this woman that shows up in her underwear all of a sudden calls me by some other man's name and then takes off without explanation and only after she doesn't give him the answers that he wants does the does the scene turn sexual or you know rape I mean, not that it's sexual but it turns into this violent attack so I cut that center section out where he did knock her down and cut straight to her, him having, holding her at the, uh, at the bridge uh, with, his, with his sword, which is also why you'll see that her dress gets much more dirty you know, in between. If you track that kind of continuity, you'll see she's actually more must. She's a little bit angrier because she's already had one encounter. But I think this was the right way to go because it, it just kind of cleans up the line and it makes it a, a little bit easier to, to track.
plaster. It just spits in his face. I love that. I really like Jack's uniform. Uh, the red coat uniforms were one, one of my bugaboos in the show from the very beginning. I said, I hate the red coats, you, usually as they're portrayed in film and television. They're usually this horrible candy apple red color, which drives me insane. And when you look at paintings of the period and what the British red coats really were, they were a, a deeper, what I would call a scarlet, a deeper, richer red. And so I was a fanatic about making sure the red was right. And I also thought it was an interesting choice. I, we talked about making Jack's, uh, the facings on his uniform are blue instead of the tradition, what we think of as a traditional white but the truth is the the red coats especially the officers had many many different colors and uh, red coat officers of the period pretty much could make their uniforms whatever they wanted them to be and even the the soldiers the the foot soldiers and the dragoons have uh, yellow facings instead of the white because we've seen the white so many goddamn times i just didn't want to see it again that's an uh, uh, that that exterior there was something we built on the stage or built sorry built on the location we took that out built that on the location but this interior is actually on the sound stage this is this is on our sound stages you know which is a remarkable job I made a decision very early on I think it might have even been in the pitch that we were not going to translate the Gallic in the show. Uh, my reasoning was the show is told first person like the books were told first person and because Claire does not understand the language that any of them are speaking you should not you the the audience should not understand uh, the language either and you know what it doesn't matter it doesn't matter that we haven't translated any of it you understand the gist of the scene you get emotionally what's happening and you're very much with Claire in this you know stranger in a strange land so I'm really happy that we did that it's a burden for the actors the actors had to actually learn Gallic you know, we had a, a classroom. Adam was our, our Gallic teacher, and he, you know, would hit them with rulers and such when they didn't say the words right. And, you know, and, and Adam was in charge of, of, the, of keeping true to the language, because Gallic is an actual language. It's actually spoken, you know, in certain parts of, of, uh, of Scotland to this day. And it was important to me that, that, that it have an authenticity to it, that it be true to what was really uh, Scotland and Scottish culture. I love Dougal McKenzie here, Graham McTavish, of course, playing Dougal. He comes through so strongly. He's like such a fascinating, interesting character right off the bat. The introduction of Jamie, I'm very proud of in that we don't give him too big of a hero's entry. And obviously, Claire and Jamie are center to the story for the whole uh, Outlander series. But I didn't want to make a giant deal of it. I like the way in the book that he's just this guy. He's just this guy with a shoulder that's screwed up. And that Claire comes and helps him. But it's not the big ah, moment of the two of them meeting. And I liked the way it was underplayed in the book. And I wanted to replicate that in the show so that their relationship developed a little bit uh, more slowly over time. Now you see coming up, you'll see when you get a good look at his shoulder, you'll see that we exaggerated the, the injury. You can see that the bone is sticking out there. The truth is with a, with a dislocated shoulder, there's not much to actually look at. It doesn't look radically different. Uh, than a normal shoulder. There's a slight uh, uh, indentation, but for dramatic purposes and to get the, the sense of how, how grisly this kind of was, we exaggerated it. We made the bones stick out uh, much further than it was. We had a prosthetic, uh, a a prosthetic piece on, uh, on Sam's shoulder there that, it, that is much, much more pronounced than an actual dislocated shoulder beat because I wanted to, you to look at it and I wanted you to wince. And when we cut to these shots of the Highlanders sort of you know, grimacing and you know, going, oh, God, I wanted you to feel that. So 
uh, and some of it's also just sound design. You know, you hear the 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 crunch and the the you know the pop of the bone, which makes you really uncomfortable. And I think you want to be uncomfortable for a scene like this. You know, you don't you want to feel the the, the sort of the nasty nature of it. We had you know, technicians on the set. We had um, a nurse on the set who could actually, you know, help uh, uh, Katrina, you know, do the proper motion. So we, we, we sweated all the details medically to make sure that she was actually doing this right. And as Katrina will tell you, she can put on a mean bandage at, the, at this point. That's one of my favorite uh, beats right there where he, she says, uh, fetch me a belt. And he says, fetch me, she says. And Dougal just raises his eyebrows and says, give her your belt. It, says, it speaks volumes about the relationships. It speaks volumes about the time. and It's just a nice bit of business. And I really like all, all the Highlanders and how, how strongly they come through. You know, what, what was fascinating to me about the book was this moment that, you know, she applies her skills in this, in this context. And she does it with such authority and such command that these guys who are not used to paying attention to a woman or, or having anything, to, you know, caring about what a woman should think or do would actually listen to her and would actually like obey her to a certain extent. And, and that they, they realized that the aura of authority and her voice and they intuitively knew that she knew what the hell she was talking about. And I love that. And I love the fact that it, it validates Claire for the rest of the series in a lot of ways in their eyes that she showed up, took charge of that situation and knew what to do and did it correctly. And it, it, it was a great, it was a great, great beat in the book. And I think it, it works the, the same way in the show. This was tricky. Again, this is, a, a, you know, looking out and not seeing electric lights is a tricky thing to do. So you've seen Inverness earlier on at Crag and Dunn in the 1940s. Now you're seeing it again, and you just see a couple of pinpoints of, of torchlight out there, or what could are probably fires. We went through a lot of versions trying to figure out how much you should see or not see down there, because again, you're trying to communicate uh, a difficult idea, which is the absence of something, the absence of light, as opposed to, to seeing light itself. One interesting little note there, you can see that uh, Katrina steps up onto a step stool that's off camera to get up onto the horse. It's really raining here at, uh, at the cottage. It rained all this night. God, this is such a miserable night. And yeah, he's stepping up onto a step stool too to get on his horse. This was a particularly miserable location and night. All, I was out there, the, myself and the rest of the camera crew were all standing in, in like ankle deep mud and the rain is pouring down and it's freezing cold. And I've got to tell you, Katrina Balfe is a trooper's trooper's trooper because she never complains. She's out there wearing less than anybody else. I'm, I'm wrapped in Gore-Tex and standing off to the side and still shivering. Katrina's out there and not much at all and never complaining and hitting her lines and doing it every single time, no matter how many times uh, we asked her to do it. And she's, she's a remarkable actress, and we're <laughs> incredibly fortunate to have her. Uh, I think we talked about... Yeah, we talked about doing more sequences of them writing. You know, we, we have several writing shots in the, in the show, and we opted... You know, these, these sequences coming up are actually second unit shots, uh, you can tell because we don't see their faces of the actors. So these were shot by uh, photo doubles and, and stunt people uh, out in, in various locations in the in the Highlands. They were shot actually many, many weeks later after after principal photography was done. I like that we were going through difficult terrain. And you can see that they're conveniently ducking their heads so that you don't actually see their faces. 
these might have been shot, I think, when we were doing episode five, which is rent, which is when the Highlanders were out going, uh, collecting rents around. So we had more time, we had more horses, and we could go out into bigger bigger terrain than we had in, in block one to, sh to shoot those pieces. Uh, this, this ambush coming up, we actually went back and, and shot some pickups on it. Because uh, initially the, the thought was we weren't going to see anything at all. It was all going to be completely from Claire's point of view and she was going to get knocked off, thrown off the horse. Although he throws her off the horse a little bit harder than I thought he would. He throws her off the horse, she runs away, and you really didn't see anything at all. Uh, when we got into it, it felt like you did want to see something. So actually the shots of them riding up and charging into the Highlanders, or, sorry, sorry, the Highlanders riding into the Redcoats and the Redcoats firing and so on, those were shot uh, actually a couple of months later uh, and we combined them back with the footage because we wanted a little bit more of the ambush. We wanted to see a little bit more action, uh, even though we were still sticking with Clara's point of view and uh, watching her sort of uh, take off on her own. Uh, the the Cockneyman Rock itself is actually a visual effect that we created both in the earlier 1940s driving scene and here in this sequence that rock does not exist, so please don't try to go to Scotland and find Cockneyman Rock. Again, another place where we just chose to go with the Gaelic and not to translate it because you get it. You totally get what he's saying to, to Dougal. You get Dougal's questioning of it. You don't need this subtitled. So even though it's like an odd thing not to subtitle stuff you know, for the modern audience, I just feel like the audience is smart enough to, to follow along and they don't need to be held by the hand at every waking moment. <clears throat> yeah, so right there, visual effect. We're back to the, to the players here in the, the first episode. And she's going to get thrown off the horse here very quickly. He really throws her off this horse. I mean, it's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty hard throw, Jamie. He almost threw her in the river, and then that's all first first episode. Now, from about here, this was all the stuff that was shot weeks later. In fact, months later, all this stuff. I we we shot that at a completely different location, a completely different time of year, and then and uh, comped it into this section. So Claire takes off. I think in the book, I think I had originally written this as a crossroads, like she was going to end up at a, uh, at literally a crossroads where she was standing and trying to figure out which way to go when Jamie uh, caught up to her. But you know, you, you try to adjust these things on the fly depending on what you can and cannot find on locations. So what they did find was this interesting section of, of forest where you had the river and you had Claire uh, climbing around, but she really didn't need an actual uh, crossroads to make the scene work. So we went that way. I think in the book, this stuff happened at night, and we opted to do it in daylight because, again, you know, we were trying to maximize uh, the use of our locations and didn't really need the, the daylight stuff, didn't need the nighttime stuff. A lot of a lot of conversations about how much Jamie, how much blood Jamie was going to have on his on his costume and on his face, and I think there was an impulse initially to sort of say, "Oh, let's 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 clean him up. Let's not have all this blood on his face. He's he's our handsome actor." And I, my attitude was, "I don't care. He should be bloody. He should look like crap, you know. And it's okay to have actors look like crap on television, you know. I think it really is. I think a lot of times, 
you know, uh, the, the, the classic broadcast network uh, way of going at these things is that your, your characters always have to look beautiful. They always have to look perfect. They always have to look like they just stepped out of the makeup trailer. And I think that's kind of bullshit. And I think the audience knows it's bullshit. And I think that the more beautiful you make them in circumstances like this, where they should be bloody and messy and grungy, the more the audience steps back and says, ah, this isn't real. And okay. And as soon as the audience says it's not real, then they, they distance distance themselves emotionally from what's happening uh, on screen and you don't want that you want them leaning into what's happening on screen you want them connecting more to the reality of it so the closer to reality you can make it the more authentic you can make things even things just like hair and makeup uh, I, I think the you know the stronger chance you have of the audience giving themselves over to the drama and then they're more willing to laugh cry you know experience heartbreak with with your characters than they are if they're sitting back and going oh yeah I, it's cute, but I don't really believe it. And so one of the, our goals in the show was to make it as believable as possible. Uh, this whole little sequence, it's raining a lot. You can't see it all the time. It rained on and off all day as we were shooting this scene. And this was difficult because of the horses. <laughs> Not all of our, our, our actors are good horse people. I won't pick out any names. But uh, the horses, you know, sometimes have minds of their own if they know that the rider is not, not so conversant with them. And they would just tend to walk off or wander off. And then you'd have to, like, set it again and get the horses back to everyone back to one. And the horses, you know, when they're riding off camera, they, they tend to take a while. They take their good sweet time getting back to their initial marks. So anything having to do with horses and actors, uh, it, it takes a surprising amount of time, which was news to me because actually in my 20-some, 20 plus year career this was the first show that i'd ever done that actually used horses so i was a little surprised how long it took to reset takes after horses and like oh my god the horses are taking forever can't imagine what the days were like yay way back in the olden times when westerns you know ruled the landscape in television everybody was was riding a horse they must have all been either extraordinary horse people or they had really really good horses because man it takes a long goddamn time to set these horses uh, that scene, that that beat right there, where Claire says, "Help! Stop! He's going over," was a joke within the writers' offices because that scene was one that uh, we used to uh, audition Claire's. It was one of the scenes that was sent out as as what are called sides, and all the actresses had to do that scene over and over again. This whole sequence of "Help! Stop! He's going over," and then all this stuff with you know bandaging Jamie and uh, all the jokes. So we saw the scene endlessly, and everybody got so sick of the phrase "Help! Stop! He's going over." that uh, it became a running joke in the offices and everyone started saying, you can't keep it in the show. I can't listen to that again. And of course, that just made me keep it in the show. That's a good little joke. I think there, there were actually like two other things she said in the script, but in editing, I realized it's, it's one of those situations where uh, three is the most powerful number and, you know... Uh, iodine methylate and alcohol is the punchline is the third one was was the the strongest way through this is also a key moment for fans of the book because fans realize that it's really here that jamie actually does fall in love with claire for the first time and he re, he'll tell her that much much later on but looking back this was the moment when when he was looking up at her in the night and she was like fixing his fixing his his wound 
you know, it's a bit of sleight of hand with there with her tearing off her, her dress. This is one of the things that takes endless time and production talking about tearing Claire's dress. How much of her dress is she going to tear? The dress isn't meant to tear. How can she tear it? How many takes are we going to have? And eventually you just say, it doesn't matter, guys. Just pretend that she's tearing the dress. Just like have her do the motion and, and just get it over with and then wrap it, wrap it around him already. But you spend a surprising amount of time talking about things like that as you're, as you're prepping a show. I played in initial drafts. I think I had her using much harsher language. I think she was saying fucking this and fucking that. And then it, it, it felt, somebody gave me a note, I think it might have been Merrill saying that, you know, that was too much that, you know, she didn't need to say all that because in the time, just saying bloody bastard, goddamn bloody bastard was strong enough of a profanity to get the Highlander's attention. And hey, why not? I'm not David Milch, so I'm not putting fucking into every other sentence. Not that that's a knock against David Milch, who I respect enormously. But uh, it didn't feel like we, we needed to go quite that far in the show. I like this whole little beat here. It's sort of a nice foreshadowing of things to come, a backstory about uh, Blackjack Randall and Jamie and their, their particular uh, backstory together. It also just kind of sets the stakes, but it's it's the first real moment that Claire and Jamie have in the entire series. Is this is the, this is the first time that the two of them actually get a chance to to speak alone, sort of intimately, is right here, and I like it. I really like the performances and the way this is shot, and it says a lot. I think it, I think you sense the chemistry between the two, although we're not just playing that. It's really about something else, but you feel that there is an attraction. You feel that there is something else going on here. But again, we're not knocking you over the head with it. We're not trying to just like kill you with the fact that there there's a, a a love interest there that this is a romance on, on some basic level but you're sensing it because again I think you can trust the audience to believe in the story that you're telling you don't have to like shove it down their throats and make them feel it they will feel it the audience is very smart and they will understand intuitively that these two characters are going to get together eventually but you don't have to just slam them over and over again the one thing we do is this thing with the hand which again was something that uh, John Dahl put in seeing her hand reach out and she helps him up which is not usually what happens but the fact that she reaches out and pulls the, the burly Highlander to his feet, I think is, is great. And on your, whole so on your horse, soldier. I love that. I like that a lot. And there's an interesting little rack here, the rack focus from Claire over to Angus and Rupert, who are watching her, because that's going to come to play into the show much later. Now we're outside Dune. This is actually outside of Dune Castle. This is uh, uh, very close to the actual uh, place. If you were to pan the camera to the left, you'd see the visitor center and the road leading up. But they're just kind of walk, uh, riding across, uh, riding across the, the little meadow there. And there's actual uh, Dune. Uh, we've taken out a couple of modern anachronisms. There's a small cupola on the top of that roof that we took out. We added some people, you know, digitally we added people up on the ramparts and added smoke into the chimney and so on. But basically that really is the way that, that Dune works. Dune looks, God, how much scotch have I had? Well, and that is, uh, this is pretty much the end of episode one. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you'll come along with all of us for the journey uh, as Claire continues her adventure into uh, the 18th century. And I will talk to you next week on episode 102, Castle Leak. Until then, this is uh, Ronald D. Moore, and uh, thank you for joining me. Good night.